Before we get started, I want to personally invite you to join me for a live FinTech Leaders recording and happy hour with Stuart Sop, CEO and co-founder of Current, a multi-billion dollar FinTech built in New York City. Join us at Barclays Rise New York on Monday, October 16 to kick off New York Tech Week. You can visit the show notes on FinTech Leader Substack to find the registration link. See you there. I'm thrilled that we did not, you know, fall for any of the SPAC madness that was going on at the time. And, you know, there wasn't a week that went by that our phones weren't ringing. Somebody say, oh, we can take you public. I'm like, we're not ready. We're not ready. I would still say we're not ready. And so now it's really interesting is our acquisition is now sort of ramping back up to almost where it was when we were in peak spending levels, but at a significantly lower acquisition cost. I mean, like fraction. There was an article yesterday, I think, in Bloomberg or two days ago that was saying that, you know, how many fintechs have tried and, and not gotten through, you know, and it's a big moat to cross. And so uh, and then with changing economic conditions, I think the regulators have also kind of taken pause to say, OK, you know, do they want to give charters if there's uncertainty around how that's going to play out in the business model and you know, making sure that all the right consumer protections are in place? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode... I sit down with Colin Walsh, CEO and co-founder of Vero Bank, a neobank and the first consumer fintech to be granted a bank charter in the U.S. In a past life, Colin held leadership positions at Amex, Lloyd's Banking Group, and Visa. Vero has raised close to a billion dollars and is backed by BlackRock, David Rubenstein's Declaration Partners, Warbur Pincus, and a long list of investors. We discuss finding product market fit and why this process can often take years, advantages and disadvantages of being a regulated institution, and why Colin is proud that Varo secured the banking charter, making tough decisions, and how Varo redefined itself over the last couple of years, Colin's take on the big rebundling of fintech, and a lot more. Colin, welcome to FinTech Leaders. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Miguel. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Where, where are you? Where are you dialing in from? I am here in downtown San Francisco. Beautiful day here. Right in the middle of SF. How's SF these days? It's great. I mean, you know, we get, we're, we're a little bit of the punching bag in the media these days, but, you know, I think every city has its issues and, but it's, it's fairly localized and there definitely are problems with, you know, homelessness and, and, and drug issues and other things. But I'd say it's, you know, one of the best cities in the world. It still remains one of the only places where you can go to the beach, go skiing and go wine tasting all on the same day. So it's a pretty great place to be. Not that I spend a lot of time doing any of those these days. 
I think you got the order right. Because <laughs> you don't want to go wine tasting before skiing. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> and actually, I, I talked to founders both in the Bay Area, but also in New York. And kind of there's this debate, what is the capital of fintech? You're building a fintech in SF. I argue as a New Yorker that New York is, is the capital of fintech, but but clearly there's a ton of innovation. I would beg to differ on that. I think New York is definitely still the capital of institutional capital. And, and you know, mo- many of my big backers are in New York because they really understand the complexity of what we're, what we're building. But I would say there's a lot, still a lot of buzz and innovation happening in the Bay Area and will continue to be so. And, and that's what I want to hear from you and all the innovation that, that you guys are pioneering at, at Vero. Before we talk about Vero, Colin, you spent time at Amex in a leadership role, and you've actually been involved with Visa in the past as a board member advisor. These are obviously iconic brands. People don't realize that these are fintechs, if you think about it, just, you know, they're older than the fintech wave we're seeing. What did you learn at those institutions? Yeah, I, I, I really, actually, I did two tours of duty at Amex, one early in my career and one later. I'd say my pre-Varo career was probably three chapters. So one was the eight or nine years I spent at Wells Fargo. And, you know, many of your listeners might be surprised to hear that, you know, Wells was once a really great company. <laughs> it was exciting. It was innovative. We were building things. It was high growth. You know, we weren't just constantly dealing with mistakes of the past. And I think that it's unfortunate, you know, after I left, I definitely, you know, the, the company got itself into a bunch of issues. But, you know, that was a really exciting period in my life and and an early stage of my career where I was involved in starting businesses from the ground up inside of a big company, building things, dealing with hyper growth. And so that was kind of the first chapter. The second chapter was I went to the UK and I was at Lloyd's during the financial crisis. So before, during and after. (laughs) And, And that was, you know, honestly, one of the most profound experiences of my professional career and, and and really helped me kind of cut my teeth in some of the much more complex regulatory issues, balance sheet management issues, things that, you know, are fundamental to survival. And even as you look at what just happened over the course of this past year with some of these banks, I mean, some of the lessons that were drawn from that period where, you know, the, the basically the financial crisis hit. We bought our largest competitor. We were now the largest bank in the UK. You were kind of the whole industry was sort of teetering on the abyss and, and, you know, learning how to navigate through that. And I had the payments businesses, the deposit businesses. I took on the mortgage company, which was the largest in Europe at that time. And so there's just a ton of complexity embedded in sort of navigating through that period. And so while painful, I would say, you know, hugely developmental from a career perspective. And then I went back to Amex. And so I left Lloyd's and I, I ran the European consumer business for Amex. And, you know, Amex is an amazing business. It's got a playbook, well-established. It's been successful for a very long time. And some of those traits also kind of limit how much innovation you can see because there's kind of a way of doing things. And and so, so I think ultimately for me, it was like, okay, I've had all these great experiences. How do I go do something truly impactful? And, you know, kind of learn from those, you know, periods of time and different contexts and different experiences, but I'll go create something that can have a real impact in the world. And that was really kind of the inspiration and also knowing that we could build a platform that could solve really complex issues that customers are facing. And we'll spend more time talking about that. Often you talk to entrepreneurs and from the moment they had the idea to the moment they started building their company, sometimes it's years, sometimes 
weeks or months. How long was that period for you? Well, there were, let's just say the itch started a long time previous. And then it was the actual doing something about it that was probably about a year and a half of, you know, just sort of being out there, talking to early stage founders, talking to VCs, understanding what it takes to build something from scratch. Because keep in mind, like all of these jobs that I've had, I had huge institutional support, big brands behind me, lots of budgets. And so this idea of sort of like doing something from nothing and, and really having to kind of scrap together a product and being really clear around what we were trying to build, the problems we were trying to solve, how we would get from point A to point B was sort of was new. I mean, without having, you know, you, I couldn't just call the strategy department and say, hey, build me a deck and tell me how to do this. And, you know, I had to figure it all out and, and find people who share the belief and the passion around the problems we were solving to sort of get that going and sort of building that early momentum was certainly, you know, an interesting phase and period. But I'd say the idea itself sort of gelled for me through a series of conversations with other founders, particularly the founders of Simple, who had started the first neobank in the U.S. And, and Josh and Shamir were in the process of selling that business to BBVA and, and said, you know, like, there's a real opportunity here to kind of carry that forward and, and create the next generation player that, that could become a real bank, which was, I think, for me, really fundamental to the thesis and being able to innovate in a, in a way that could be truly sustainable over a very long period of time. And in fact, I'm, I'm actually hosting my own podcast in a, in a, in a couple of weeks and Shamir is going to be a guest. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'll definitely flag it in, in the show notes. And she is a, a friend of the show. That's awesome. Great. So once you get building, what, what are some challenges you did not anticipate? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest one was I had sort of a naive expectation on how quickly you could develop and get product market fit, you know, and bring something in the market that was really catching on with consumers. And so, and, and when I say, you know, unrealistic expectation, I mean, I thought we could do it in like in months, you know, and, and the reality is it takes years to really get it right and to build out a truly fulsome product that has all the features and the bells and whistles that customers are looking for and to optimize, you know, just the experience from, you know, the first pixel when somebody discovers you to kind of the experience that they get inside the product. And, and so, you know, I had a plan, you know, in the beginning and my team, we put together sort of and the best part of it is like I showed my chief product officer the other day, the original pitch deck. And like nothing's really changed. I mean, we're just building it. And we're now at a point where, you know, over these last eight years, you know, that original founding vision is coming to life in a, in a hugely impactful way. And so that for me personally is incredibly rewarding. But I'd say that, you know, the biggest sort of learning was, you know, that it just takes time and it takes a lot of iterations. It takes different skills. I think the other thing is that you need different types of skills in those early stages than you do in later stages. And, you know, we took a pretty complex path because not only did we raise funding and build sort of almost like a proof of concept product with a sponsor bank, we went through a regulatory approval process in parallel. So while we were kind of building and experimenting and getting product market fit, we were also dealing with regulators. And once we went through a 
really complex approval process, you know, building a banking platform from the ground up and then having to migrate all those customers over to the new bank platform. And so, so it was, it took multiple cycles, maybe more so than if we had just decided, okay, we're going to build a point solution, we're going to scale that, and then we're going to figure it out after. We were kind of going for the whole thing and doing really almost two things in parallel, the, the building of the core product, but then also becoming a regulated institution rebuilding an entire platform and then rebuilding the product on top of that platform. And, you know, for a relatively early stage startup, that was a lot to take on. But, you know, now we're through that. We're actually now three years into our charter. August 1st was a three-year anniversary of becoming the first fintech that the OCC granted, a uh, consumer fintech that they granted a national bank charter to. And so that's, you know, it's been been full of uh, interesting twists and turns, but, you know, super rewarding. And most important is the impact we're having on our customers. And I look forward to talking more about that. Colin, so you mentioned the banking charter that you were granted three years ago. Let's talk a bit more about that because it's a long process, expensive. Most fintechs don't do it, right? Oh, I mean, there was an article yesterday, I think, in Bloomberg or two days ago that was saying that, you know, how many fintechs have tried and, and not gotten through, you know, and it's a big moat to cross. And so, uh, and then with changing economic conditions, I think the regulators have also kind of taken pause to say, okay, you know, do they want to you did give charters if there's uncertainty around how that's going to play out in the business model and, you know, making sure that all the right consumer protections are in place. And so, so it's actually, there's almost been a little bit of a slowdown in terms of any new charters. And so it puts a lot of pressure on us, all eyes are on us. So it's like, how does Varro do? Because we're a little bit of an experiment, but hopefully we'll please everybody to the upside on that. So tell us why did you decide to do it? And then let's talk about what are you seeing in the results? Has your ambition actually translated into into numbers? Yeah, sure. So I would say for me, it was just an intuitive, like having been a practitioner, having spent all that time inside the regulated system, you know, the, the advantages of being a regulated institution far outweigh the sort of extra cost and complexity of, of being your own regulated institution. And so some of those advantages are, are around product and what you can do from, if you think about the customer we serve, which is, you know, folks that are living paycheck to paycheck, they're aspiring to live a better life. You know, they need to, you know, lower their expenses. They need to manage their their, their money and, and their cash flow. They need to move money quickly. So access to payment systems and things like Zelle. And we've got some exciting new things that we're doing on the payment side that are going to get announced shortly. So I don't want to tip our hand on that yet. They're you know, being able to build savings habits and being able to actually have tools, incentives to start saving so that you can build that extra sort of little bit of cushion and financial resiliency and then start saving for goals being able to build credit, being able to access credit, and then having the ability to have a variety of different things, whether we, we have a secured card, we have cash advance, we're, we're starting to offer larger lending facilities for customers, eventually, you know, credit cards and other things that are so important. And then, you know, further down the road, being able to b actually build wealth. And so moving beyond this state of trying to gain more control and stability in your life and, and being able to have that positive cash flow every month to a place where you can start entering into more of an ownership mindset 
whether it's around owning, you know, stocks and bonds and money market funds or owning, you know, your own home at some point and getting onto the housing ladder or being able to start your own business. And so, so Varo is really all about helping people kind of find that path towards prosperity to wealth creation over the long haul and, and meeting them at a point in their life where they might have, you know, a fair amount of, you know, volatility and, and feeling like they they need more control over their finances. And so so that's kind of the the start point when we 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 meet our customers and and try to give them all of those tools. Like this is another thing that I, I like to talk about and where the bank charter helps enable is that, you know, I don't see us as like a single point solution. Like there's not what like I can't just say, oh yeah, we're just a low cost checking account or we're just a short-term lending facility or we're just a savings account. We're a platform. Like we're kind of like the way we talk about it internally is sort of like the a financial operating system for our customers. They come to us and and all of these things are working in tandem help them start to see like you know we i like to use the analogy like i'd love to have a customer start with us you know they're shopping and you know walmart for their groceries but then there's and there's no no shame in that at all you know most americans but then you know a few years from now are they shopping at whole foods <laughs> like if they actually made that progress in their lives and been able to build savings get their credit under control start to generate you know consistent positive cash flow of uh, you know they're starting to save up for a home they're saving up for a business. You know, those are all things that are just so foundational, but for so many people in this country right now, it feels out of reach. And this is where if Varo can be part of that solution, it, to me, that's the most important part of why we exist. Colin, let, let's talk a little bit about the concept of product market fit. So there's no question that a banking model is going to find product market fit. It's a proven model for centuries. But each institution has to find its audience, right? And then how long did it take you to figure out who your customer really is? Or did you know that from the beginning? How was that discovery? Yeah. So our sort of mission and focus from the start has always been around how do we create greater inclusion, greater opportunity. I'd say in the early days, we were probably focused on the younger audience, thinking that there was going to be like, we call them kind of cash-strapped millennials that were trying to, you know, figure out their credit and figure out their savings. And and it was actually in early 2018. So this was, we launched our first product in 2017. Then we launched Android. And so we started on iOS initially. And then we launched Android. And we realized like how broad and how deep the audience was that we could potentially serve. And it wasn't just you know, sort of cash-strapped millennials at the time that were in their 20s. I mean, our average customer age is about 34, 35, you know, but we span, we touch customers in every demographic, every age group, because so many people need a solution that we're offering. And, and when you talk about like, you know, every bank can succeed, you're right, but very few are focused on our customer segment. So really that sort of paycheck to paycheck consumer that's high intent, that wants to build a better life. If you think about, you know, we've all, I mean, many of us, I've lived there, I've been there, you know, myself where, you know, you're just trying to sort of get by and it's hard, but the, the incumbent institutions don't really have packaged solutions that are so fully integrated and designed to sort of help you solve these problems. And to me, that's where the huge opportunity is. And so, you know, there are other players out there that are sort of playing 
in the space that I'd call are more synthetic banks. They're working with sponsor banks. And and that's harder because when you have the charter, you can kind of do all of these things. You have your own bank, essentially. You're not working with a partner bank. And so, you know, there's you're held to a very high standard and a lot of regulatory scrutiny. But if you can get that right and effectively manage the risks, you can move much faster and do much more. And that was always sort of at the heart of why we did it the way we did. And Colin, do you think, just to challenge you a little bit, do you think that customers, the average customer, really values a charter or no charter, or do they simply don't know? I would look at it through two lenses. One, first, I would say yes to that question, that, that they actually do know. And we see this in app reviews and NPS feedback and, you know, customer calls that people are like, oh, Varro is a real bank. Like it's a legitimate bank. You know, it's a member of the FDIC. It's OCC regulated. Like customers are very, very savvy. And especially when it comes to your money. You want your money to be safe. You want your money to be secure. You want it to be available when you need it. But the other piece of it is what we can do with the charter, what we are doing with the charter in terms of the the richness of what we can offer. So, I mean, that that they may not sort of connect the dot and say, oh, it's because they're a bank that now I can use Zelle. Now I can get access to more credit. Now I can get a high savings rate. You know, all of these things that like, you know, the average consumer may not sort of say, oh, I see that they can do that because they're a bank, but because we're a bank, we can do those things. And so I think it just has that other benefit. Makes sense. Makes sense. And it kind of ties into something I was going to ask you next, which is about kind of the history of our last wave of fintech, the last 10, 15 years, which has been all about unbundling products, right? And every company that I can think of started with a single monoline product and then as expanded, you've definitely pursued that vision how do you think that's going to evolve? Yeah, well, I, and I've talked about this and I've written about this before too, that you know, like sort of FinTech 1.0 was very much point solutions, solve a customer pain point, scale it up rapidly, and then sort of add on top of it. Like Robinhood did a great job with that. You know, I think there's a bunch of, you know, the early wealth tech solutions and sure tech solutions. You had payment solutions like Cash App and Venmo and so on and so forth. And like that, that all kind of took off on the back of that. I think Square is probably, or Block now is probably a great best example of like, you know, they built the merchant solution. Now they've got cash app and they've been able to successfully diversify that business at a level of scale that, that that's super impressive. And I think that, you know, I think Nubank is doing that as well in Brazil. I, then I would say, but FinTech 2.0 is really about that sort of rebundling because customers don't want 12 apps on their phone. They don't want to have to like hack together a money management system, which many of them do because they don't have a sort of comprehensive you know, sort of operating system, so to speak, you know, a, a really holistic solution. And so you are now seeing that sort of evolution towards much more rebundled and and not just point solutions. And I think for me, it, at the beginning, in, and this was for many years of retail and consumer banking experience, it starts with that core transaction account, because this is where you build trust. This is where customers paycheck goes. It's where their bills get paid. It's where their spending happens. And so to do that right, you really start to earn the trust of the consumer from the beginning. And then the ability to introduce, whether it's savings or credit or cashback solutions or other types of offers that you might have, you see much higher engagement and much higher take rates. And honestly, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen the level of take rate at any institution is what we have at VARO. When we introduce new products and features, the engagement 
is off the charts because we've built that trust with our customer. You know, we've got 75 plus NPS scores, you know, probably the best in the banking industry. You know, customers really love what we've designed because we've designed it around their needs. So I definitely see the kind of FinTech 2.0 being around that unbundling. And then, you know, a lot of folks now are talking about embedded solutions that, you know, you make to even take more friction out. I, I actually think the next generation is sustainability. So you've got to have to have institutions that can generate their own capital. And I think a lot of focus now is on, you know, just that getting to that point of sustainability, certainly for us and for others, so that they're not dependent on capital markets to survive. Speaking of sustainability, there's a number, some of the very large fintech companies out there that are mostly focused on credit, right? At deposit-taking institutions, What's your take on this? Yeah, non-bank lenders, it's a tough time right now because, you know, costs of funds have gone way up. So, you know, you get both securing and then, you know, the cost of managing wholesale funding. You know, fortunately, credit losses have not been too dramatic. I mean, I've you know, lived through cycles where credit losses, you know, go up two, three, four X, and you haven't quite seen that dynamic yet. It does look like, you know, we're going to probably go into a soft landing and not have a, a really deep recession, knock on wood, let's hope, you know, that, that that ultimately plays out the way it appears to. So you might not have that credit loss, but, you know, that creates real margin compression when you, well, you have a choice. You either have to pass it along to the customer in terms of higher pricing, which gets very painful for the consumer, or you absorb it and you you take the margin hit. And so so it's it's challenging. And then acquisition costs are high too. And, and, and lending businesses tend to be more transactional. So, you know, how often do you need a debt consolidation loan? Or how often do you need a mortgage? You know, I think a mortgage used to be sort of every sort of seven years or so, maybe, you know, with when interest rates were low, it, it, it goes more frequently when interest rates go up, it's less frequent. But but the point is, every time you're reacquiring that customer, whereas if you start with that core banking relationship and you have kind of not only lots of data and insights on the customer and how they're living their lives, but then you design other features that are real valuable, that are that are unlocking value for the consumer, you don't have to reacquire that customer. You, you know, as and you can as a business get the economics associated with the additional usage of new features and monetize that without new acquisition costs. Speaking of customer acquisition, if you look at your customers and the new customers you're bringing on board, call it this year or late 2022 versus 2020, 2021, very different time. What what has changed? Yeah, so a lot. <laughs> it's been an interesting couple of years. So, you know, we were scaling fairly rapidly at a, you know, at a reasonable cost of acquisition. Then COVID hit. There was a lot of sort of hype in the, you know, in the system, a lot of money flowing in, which brought a lot of competition. We ourselves, you know, raised a lot of money during that period of time. And it was sort of a kind of grow at all costs sort of mindset and acquisition costs went way up engagement, conversion rates started to come down. And so we pulled back significantly, both because we, you know, it was sort of questionable whether this was the right strategy and, and were we better off sort of investing in R&D and just continuing to improve the product and the fact that the markets were closing up. So, you know, the idea of new capital was, you know, going to get a lot harder and a lot more expensive. And so, so we pulled way, way back and, and sort of cut our marketing expenditures by like 85%. Uh, and then have spent the last year retooling kind of how we think about customer acquisition and how to get smarter around who are the customers we want to acquire, how to build 
much more sophisticated tools to be able to get out there and find those customers, also being able to build a better product that drives more organic traffic. And so now it's really interesting is our acquisition is now sort of ramping back up to almost where it was when we were in peak spending levels, but at a significantly lower acquisition costs. I mean, like fraction. And so so it shows a couple of things. One, if you kind of do it the right way and you also do have to sustain R&D investment to make your product better, or make your systems better, or make your you know ability to A-B test and experiment and learn all of that. Like we didn't lose any of that, but we did, you know, cut in other areas to, to bring down our burn rate and to uh, stop that, that inefficient spend. And now, but, but it also shows that there's real demand in the market too, that, you know, the problems we're trying to solve are very real problems. And, you know, just, you know, a quick t- tangent, you know, like I get, I, I speak, you know, fairly publicly, I think, around the the plight of the everyday consumer. You know, our customer is the, you know, the dog walker, the gardener, the hairdresser, the whatever. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're just, it's the lifeblood of America. And I started this company to try to help these folks because the banks were not serving them well. Here we are almost eight years later, and the problems have actually gotten worse. And if you take rising interest rates, rising inflation, it is so hard for so many people just to get to that next paycheck, forget about like if you've been saving up trying to buy a home. Now interest rates are seven percent. You know, banks, the top four banks. I mean, it's shameful that they're paying pittance on their savings accounts. So it's like, you know, I my my message to the industry is, come on, folks, let's do better. I mean, there's so many people. You know, you've got sixty three percent of Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck. There's so much more we as an industry can do about that. So going back to the like, why are acquisition costs coming down? Why is acquisition volumes going up, it's because there's so many people that need what we're doing. And, and, you know, I, I don't look at it as like, oh, well, it, you know, I'm going to go secretly build this stuff and I don't want anybody else to. I mean, I think it's great when I hear big banks dropping overdraft fees or offering early paychecks or things that like, I think we and, and, and a small group of other fintechs that have been doing this for a while are influencing the big players to sort of change some of their practices to help consumers. Colin, I'm, I'm fascinated by this retooling that you've mentioned, you cut marketing spend 85%, yet you are growing at levels similar to past spend. I've seen that in some of our portfolio companies at Gilgamesh Ventures, and then it's fascinating what that happens. But tell us about how you did it from within. Did you have to bring a new team yeah, I, I, I pretty much have. So, you know, we brought in a new chief product officer. We have a new, new CTO. Our data science team has been around for a little bit. Our, our design team has been around for a little bit. But one of the big things we did is when we made the big restructuring in the second quarter of 2022, we created something called VaroTech. So we, we basically took data science, design, product, engineering, and created a business unit. Now, I, I lead that unit as well as the rest of the bank, but like, but the team and the leaders there like work incredibly collaboratively to, to sort of solve some of these and, and unlock some of these problems, which are a lot of it is tech driven and using data, using design systems, building products that, that customers really care about. And sometimes it's just even subtle tweaks in the product features that have a big lift and a big impact in terms of performance and the technology stack as well and evolving what was already a modern technology stack into something that's becoming even more sophisticated with, you know, real seasoned leadership in, in all of those areas. And so, so that, that, 
kind of organizational construct had a big impact in terms of some of the results that we're seeing today, as well as, you know, it's just grinding it out. You know, it's a lot of testing. It's pushing things out there. It's, you know, we've been able to sort of release on a regular basis. We're constantly upgrading our product, the product experience, the design. We launched a new website. We saw double conversion rates, you know, almost overnight with the new website that the team worked on just to make it really talk to the customers that we serve in a powerful way. And so all of these things have been incredible incredibly impactful. And, and I couldn't be more excited about kind of what lies ahead, you know, so it's, you know, it's, you go through that period of you pull back, things slow a little bit, and then they start to accelerate again. And so I think we're going to see some, you know, over the course of the next sort of four quarters or so, some really exciting things. And it sounds like in the process, you probably realize of some mistakes that you have made, right? Oh, totally. Maybe could you talk about one or two of those? Yeah. I mean, like example, like, you know, we, we had like, we had a bunch of like, just inactive accounts and probably were sitting there with like, you, know, you could have some fraudsters. So yeah, like we closed a ton of it. Like you just said, you know what, we're not in the grow at all costs. Like we don't really care anymore. Like we have, do I go into these podcasts and say, I've got 8 million. <laughs> it's like, you know, if somebody's sitting there, they're not using account for over a year, forget it. We're going to close it. And it's like, you know, if, if, if we've got a lot of good stuff for the folks that are going to actively use that, I think just getting smarter on some of those commercial decisions, I think also, you know, having to make some tough you know, people and staff decisions, like we just grew too fast without, you know, w when we raised a bunch of money, you know, we opened the bank. I think we had a set of projections assuming that we were going to grow much, much bigger, you know, and I, I, you know, it's all, you know, in hindsight, sure, I think it was pretty optimistic. And then the reality of, you know, a hyper-competitive market, you know, slowing down and funding, all the rest of it, like we had to pull back. And so, you know, and that's painful because obviously that also means you know, to say goodbye to people that, you know, you, you really respect and value. And, and so we had to make some of those really tough decisions, but, you know, I'll take accountability for the fact that like, I was just as much bought into the hype cycle as everyone else that like, this was just going to explode and we were going to have this massively huge business. And we probably just got it, got a little over our skis from a hiring perspective. So those would be some of the things that I'd say that, you know, looking back, what is, what do you say? Hindsight is 2020. So. Colin, for those entrepreneurs who are still in the process of readjusting and possibly getting ready to go through another or maybe a first RIF reduction in force, what would you, if you were talking to a group of entrepreneurs who are about to go through that process, what would you advise them? Yeah. I mean, it's, you have to do it if you have to do it. Like, you know, what's super important is to extend your runway, make sure you have sufficient capital to get yourself to profitability, or at least certainly get to metrics that would allow you to reasonably raise more capital. And so, you know, you just kind of have to lean into it as hard, as hard and as painful as it is. And, but you have to treat people with respect and dignity. You have to over communicate. You also have to help people who are not let go, sort of stay engaged and and believe in the future and give them something to get very excited about that, you know, and the problems that you're solving probably haven't changed. It's just the context of the market you're playing in, or maybe the performance wasn't what you expected it to be, but you've got to bring the people that are still with you 
along for that journey after you make some of those decisions. And that's hard. And you got to give people time to sort of heal and absorb because those, you know, people in, you know, we've been in a remote workforce, which has been weird for, you know, the last few years. I mean, people are now starting to come back to the office and sort of rebuild some of those relationships. But the reality is people do form relationships. They enjoy the people for the most part that they work with. And when somebody's no longer there or they've been impacted, you know, and they also worry about the folks that, that have been impacted. I mean, those are all very, very real, normal human emotions and, and being a leader that, that has compassion for that and, and helping people work through that change curve is so important. I guess it's a little bit related, but how about learnings from raising capital? Because when you got started, it was way before the hype of 2021, where you got out to raise funding from venture capitalists, you went through multiple rounds of capital. But also, you know, you, you, Avaro has lived in a reality where, you know, it's not as easy. Well, and, and this is where I think the metrics matter. I mean, obviously the, the, the size of the market, the conviction, the vision, you know, all of that has to be incredibly compelling, particularly in this environment right now that, you know, there's a real market that needs that, that can be served better by what you have to offer that you've got the, the people and the chops to sort of go make all that happen. But then it really boils down to metrics. So you have to be able to show in, you know, I think the, the world has shifted much more towards the unit economics. And, you know, we, one of the things with some of the changes we made last year, we turned into, you know, very positive contribution margin, which means like, you know, every, you know, every customer we have covers all of our variable expenses, covers our marketing expenses. Like, so, you know, it's really just now getting to that next level of scale to turn profitable and, and so, and cover all the rest of the fixed expenses. And so, so I think, but being able to clearly articulate that and show kind of the evolution of the unit economics. And, you know, you had asked earlier the question, you know, one of the other reasons why the bank charter makes sense. It's just the the level of ARPU, you know, average revenue per user that we can generate through what I talked about earlier, having that core bank account, and then you have all the other products that those customers engage with, you know, you know, much, much higher level of ARPU than many or all of our kind of neobank competitors because of that bank charter. And so, but being able to articulate that clearly and being able to show that story in a very clear and compelling way to investors, as well as the fact that, you know, you, you've got growth momentum, what's happening with your CACs, is that sustainable? So a lot of it now is not just the kind of the vision, which I think is important, and that kind of gets you the first meeting. But in order to get the paid, they get the check, you need to be able to have a pretty compelling set of metrics and and sort of steps that you're taking to kind of get to that next funding raise too. If you, you know, if it's going to be multiple sort of stops along the way before you get to profitability, you've got to be able to articulate how you're going to do that in a way that makes sense for investors. Cause every investor that comes in, the next investor still wants at least three times a return on their investment. So if you're, you know, a hundred million dollar company, the next investor wants to know that you're going to be a 300 and so on and so forth. And when you get to be in the billions, you know, you have to have a pretty compelling story to share with investors. Colin, and we're running out of time, but before we go, there was a wave of fintechs that IPO'd or went public in 21, 20, and even a couple in 22, but almost none. As a publicly traded bank, you know, earlier this year, that many banks were actually glad that they were not public, right? Especially around the time of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. 
Is that something that you would consider going forward to be publicly traded or? Yeah, well, right now, I mean, I'm thrilled that we did not, you know, fall for any of the SPAC madness that was going on at the time. And, you know, there wasn't a week that went by that our phones weren't ringing. Somebody say, oh, we can take you public. I'm like, we're not ready. We're not ready. I would still say we're not ready. I mean, you know, for me, I want the business to be profitable. I want to have many quarters of sort of, you know, very clear metrics around the evolution of the unit economics, the growth trajectories, you know, the impact of introducing new products. Like there's a real story that when you, for me at least, I feel like we don't want to go public until there's like really not much to believe other than the fact that we can just continue to sustain the level of innovation and growth and inventiveness that we've created within the company. And so, you know, but that we're not there yet. I mean, I'd say we're, you know, in the market's you know, fortunately, in some respects, because you know that pressure has gone away. Because operating as a as a private company right now is, I think, a gift for many. You know, we're a little bit different because we're a bank and we have to do some public disclosures, and which are really not this nearly the same as having public uh, being a public company. So people try to pick it apart and make sense of it, but oftentimes they're like <laughs> miles away from the reality of what's going on. But but you know, so we have a little bit of that extra pressure. But that being said, I think being private for as long as you can until you really feel like you can get into the market. I mean, you look at like Adyat as a great example of a company that, a great company, it's been growing by leaps and bounds for many, many years. It had one miss and the market's just clobbered it, you know? And so so you have to have that predictability in your financials and your earnings that, that require a level of maturity that companies that are not ready for that are going to struggle. And they have, as we've seen. Really fascinating stuff, Colin. Before I let you go, uh, what has you excited about the coming year, about Viro, about the ecosystem, about your life? Yeah, I, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is the team that, that we've put in place is just extraordinary and so talented. The product roadmap that we're putting in place, I think is going to bring some really meaningful innovation and differentiation into the marketplace. And I couldn't be more excited about that. I think the, the external environment is going to remain tough for a lot of folks. You know, and not that I, you know, want to think about Schadenfreude, but I mean, it does create opportunities for us. But I feel like it's going to be a tough, you know, slog for probably, you know, through certainly through this year, maybe into next year as well. And so I think we all kind of have to work as an ecosystem and stay focused on helping these consumers live better lives. And and I think there's a lot of good examples out there, and and the strong businesses will survive and they'll ultimately thrive. All right, Colin, thank you again for taking the time out of your very busy day at joining. Thanks, Miguel. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Colin, CEO of Vera Money. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and really, truly means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armas.